So now I'm uh, really excited to introduce a good friend of mine, uh, Tyler Johnson. He's the lead pastor of Redemption Church. So Redemption is one church in multiple congregations throughout Arizona, and um, Tyler leads um, all of that. He's the lead pastor of the whole thing, and again, he's a great friend. He did play baseball at Arizona State. He might share some more about that, um, the school that shall not be named, but um, and that's the last I'll say of it, and hopefully he doesn't get into that too much either, but he's again a really good guy, godly guy, uh, great man, and I'm really excited for what he uh, has to share with us. So will you, you go ahead and give him a big round of applause and welcome him. All right, if you guys need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and someone will get you a Bible. You will want one of those if you don't have one. If you have one on your phone, uh, open up your apps. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 is where we will start. And as you guys are opening your Bibles there, I'm going to pray and ask uh, the Lord to be with us this morning. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the Bible as we open them. God, as we open our apps or we open these pages, uh, you tell us that your words have life. You tell us that your word will not return to us void, but you'll do all that you have purposed for it. God, you have a purpose for this word. For us as Redemption Tucson, you have a purpose for this word. For each of us as individuals, God, I pray that you would show us that. God, that you would make it strike us like a bright light shining in our face and that we would know what to do with it. That we wouldn't just people be people who hear the word, but that we would be people who actually do this word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you guys. Um, even if I am in Tucson next to the U of A, it's great to be with you guys. So this morning, uh, we got up here early and I went over to a coffee shop I haven't uh, been to yet. It's called EXO. Is that how you say it? Exo Coffee, it was great. Um, but as I got there, I was preparing for this, and so I opened uh, the pages of the Bible. And you know those moments when you open the pages of the Bible and people begin to walk by, and you're in a small setting or a small coffee shop, and they see it, and you can kind of see them look, look again, and then move on. And you have this moment where you go, I know some of these folks are thinking, oh, those Christians. Bible's open in the coffee shop again. But it made me think about this name we're called, this name of Christians. And so we all gather here this morning and we're coming to go to church. We're coming to do church. We're coming to be the church. And so if you said, what is the church? You say, well, it's made up of Christians. And yet not everybody who sits in this room is a Christian. And even the majority of us who sit in this room who would say we are Christians, if really forced to answer the question, what is a Christian? Or maybe more specifically, how did that name ever get attributed to us? Most of us don't know the answer. So in short form, let me just tell you this morning how the name Christians came about. In the Bible, in Acts chapter 11, it actually says that these people who were beginning to follow Jesus were first called Christians in a city called Antioch. Before that, they were called followers of the way. But they were first called Christians in Antioch, and they were called Christians by those who were not. They looked at this group of people and they said, oh, those are Christians. And the reason they came up with that name is they would call people 
the name of whom they were following. So, for instance, there was a king at the time named Herod, Herod the Great. Those who followed Herod, who dressed like him, who tried to walk like him, who wanted to talk like him, were called Herodians. And you could take a name like that. So now in the hipster culture, many people like Bob Dylan, and so you could say they're Dillians or Dylanites, right? It may be ites. Well, that's what was happening to the Christians. They were looking at them going, these people are so passionate about following Jesus that everything he does, they try to do. The cadences of the way he walked, the way he talked. After this man had died, they continued to do it. So much so that at Antioch, people went, oh, those Christians, those little Christs. And yet in our culture, this is very different. Christians are a political party. Christians are, oh, that's just the religious ceremonies you celebrated growing up. Oh, that's just the holidays you celebrated. Or that's just the culture you're a part of. But not for these people. These people, Jesus was everything. Everything to the point that it affected every aspect of the way they lived, the way they talked, and the way they walked. They were enthralled by the person and the very movements of Jesus. And just so you know it, throughout history, it hasn't just been those who decide to follow upon Jesus. They're enthralled with him. Those who decide to believe upon him and follow him. Even those who didn't throughout history have been enthralled by him. One of them, the, one of the smartest people who have ever lived on the face of the earth, Albert Einstein, said this about Jesus. He said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is a Jewish religious text. Albert Einstein, you know, just by the name, would have been born a Jew. And here he says, I am a Jew. But listen to what he says. He says, but I am enthralled by the luminous. It could also be said, the enlightening figure of the Nazarene. I am enthralled with Jesus, he says. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. Stop there. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. Now, reading means something. Beyond just scanning your eyes across the page, reading means sitting with them. And if we sit with the Gospels, of which Mark, the book we're in, is one, he says we'll feel the actual presence of Jesus. That's what Einstein says. He then goes on and he says his personality, Jesus' personality, pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, no matter how artful they may be. He's saying Jesus is way too huge for even the best, most creative, artful writers to even pen how magnificent this man truly is. He says no man, no woman can dispose of Christianity, those who follow Jesus, the way of Jesus, with a bon hot. That's like with the flip of a hand, whatever. So he's saying, regardless of who you are in this room, if you've truly encountered Jesus, as he's portrayed in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you are intellectually serious and you've really read the Gospels, there's no way you can just go, eh, Jesus, whatever. You may not believe upon him. You may not decide to follow him. But you can't just go, eh, whatever. But we as a church are those who are called Christians, meant to imitate and emulate Jesus in his very cadences, 
in the very way in which he lived. And let me tell you this, most of us have not slowed ourselves down enough to really see who he is and what he's up to. We haven't stopped to really see the shape of whom Jesus is. And today, that's exactly what we're going to look at, the very shape of Jesus. Jesus is on this journey to Jerusalem. It speaks about him at the very beginning of this section in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. As you read the Gospels, there's these things that happen. And you'll see many things happen that seem similar, but they're not identical. Well, just preceding Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, which, just real quickly, let me stop and say, does anybody know what happens when Jesus gets to get to Jerusalem? He gets killed. He gets crucified. So his journey to Jerusalem, that he knows what's in front of him, is a journey to die. Well, just prior to this, in chapter 8, Jesus had this scene with a man who was blind, in which he heals this man in stages. And the end of our section today, in chapter 10, is going to be the healing of another blind man, in which Mark is trying to say what this section is that we're about to encounter is all about our eyes. So let me see your eyes for a minute. Look up at me for a minute. This section is all about our eyes and about what we really and truly see and what, about what we really and truly don't see. Jesus has these really provocative statements that he'll make throughout the Gospels. Like, in seeing, do you really see? Or even though in seeing, they do not see. Or in hearing, do you really hear? Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And most of us go, well, I have ears, and I can hear. But he's saying, but do you really hear? And today is about really seeing. It's about wiping our eyes and saying, do we really see the true shape of our world? But more importantly, do you really see the shape of Jesus? Do we really see the shape of Jesus? Because when we're blind... Maybe even just partially blind. Dave and I were talking earlier about the lead pastor of Redemption Tempe when he was here was looking at this uh, <clears throat> mic pack. And Dave was saying, hey, touch the, the button and a green light will go on. And he went, dude, I'm colorblind. I don't, know. I don't know when a light comes on or when it doesn't come on. Some of us see progressively in stages. And Jesus affirms this when he heals this man born blind. And in Mark chapter 8, this man opens his eyes and he says, I can see for the first time. But all I see is these shapes and these movements and people moving like trees. And then later on, he'll heal a man completely and entirely. And what he's saying is many of us see at different levels the truth of the world and specifically the truth about Jesus. But today, fundamentally, is about seeing and seeing the shape of Jesus. So in verse 32, Mark says this, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Now, follow this just for a minute and slow yourself down. Hopefully, in this moment, we can slow ourselves down enough to ask some questions of this passage. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus knows what he set his eyes to, that at Jerusalem, he's going to be killed. And yet, he's out in front of everybody else. A man whose eyes are set on something that every one of us in here is seeking to avoid. Pain, suffering, and death. And yet he's leading the way. He's leading the way with such intensity that many people there are absolutely astonished, amazed, 
and those who are following are afraid. Probably, we don't know for certain because Mark doesn't say, but probably the ones who are afraid know there are people in Jerusalem who hate his guts. We're following him, which in turn means they're going to hate our guts. So many are amazed, others are absolutely afraid, and Jesus takes the twelve, those who've really been following him, he takes the twelve and he begins to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, the, what he's speaking of is the core events of his life. The core events for what Jesus is known for is his life, his death and his resurrection. The core events of his life that if you're a Christian and you read the Bible, you would say are the core events of all of human history. These events that we call the good news or the gospel is that the gospel is these real events. And these events have a shape to them. Think about the events he explains here and start thinking in shapes for a minute. Just as I read these again. These events have a shape to them. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, but on the third day he will rise. Think in shapes for a minute. Let me help you. Shape. What exactly is a shape? Well, the definition of a shape is this. The external form or appearance, the characteristic of someone or something, the outline of of an area or a figure. So think in shapes for a minute. Because we're going to say these events have a shape. But what I'm going to submit to you is the very life of Jesus takes on this very same shape. So I say about my wife, my wife's name's Haley. And I'll say, Haley is very steady Eddie. Now I've never totally known steady Eddie. If that's supposed to be like a name, like Eddie's a male name. So maybe she's steady Edith. Whatever, but she's steady Eddie, and if you were to draw a shape or an image to explain steadiness, you'd go, she's just like this. In good times, she's like this. In bad times, she comes across like this. She's just steady Eddie. Or we can talk about phrases in life. What goes around comes around, and you'd go in a shape. That's what goes around comes around. If you look maybe in an addict's life, and the Proverbs talk about like a man returning to its own vomit, like so many of us. These things we don't want to do, we continue to do. We move away from them, and then we go right back to them. Or in the Bible, there's this guy named Peter that so many of us can identify with. And he has these great moments, and then he's a failure. And then great moments and a failure. And if you said, what's the shape of this? It's like zigzags, right? You can think about this in people's lives. What is the shape of Donald Trump? Right? You might immediately feel your hands going to do something. And you're like, that's the shape of Donald Trump. But you can think about this. The very shape of somebody's life, not just their physical appearance, but their life has a shape. So as you look at the shape of these events, Jesus is saying are about to happen. And I'm submitting to you as you read the, 
the Bible, there is a shape to his overall life. What is it? Well, let's look at these events and try to just determine the shape. Verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is the third time we've read this. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. So clearly there is this going up to Jerusalem, and then from there it's just a descent. He's just going down. He's being delivered over. He's being handed over to the Gentiles. He's being mocked upon. He's being spit upon. And then you get to the very bottom. He's going to be killed. But then it says, but then on the third day he will rise. So maybe the easiest way to think about the shape of Jesus is just through the first letter of his first name. Is It's like this descent down and then this rising like a J. You could say like a V, but I think you'll remember it more if you say like the first letter of his name. His life and the events that he's remembered by here are like a J curve. Regarding where you start, maybe you start at the highest level and go down because it's a deep descent down and then all the way up. That's the events of his life. But Philippians chapter 2 said he started at the tip of the top. Being in the very form of God, he humbled himself, became a human being, entered into a world where he would be spat upon and mocked and killed, die a criminal's death upon a cross. He dies, but then God exalts him. The whole shape of Jesus' life is a descending down, descending down, descending down, descending down, then and only then at the lowest point, finding his resurrection. There's a shape to all of our lives. Like we said, my wife may be steady Eddie, Peter and you and I might be zigzags, maybe our life is a what goes around, comes around kind of idea, but the question right now I want to just pose to you is what is the shape of your life? What is the shape that you're ultimately after? What do you want it to be shaped like? What's the world telling you your life should be shaped like? Because the world has an inertia to it in which it's constantly saying, pursue this shape, pursue this direction. And we see that very clearly in the request of James and John. This world is very distant from us thousands of years ago. And yet the temptations of James and John, I would submit to you, are just like ours. The inertia of their world and the trajectory of their hearts were very similar. I would argue identical to what they are today. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to Jesus. Now understand the context. Don't shift because your Bible has a new section. This is right after Jesus has just said, here's what's going to happen to me. I'm going down. In the worst way possible, I am going down. And they go, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he says to them, okay, well, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they say to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So what are they saying basically? Give us glory. 
You're the man, we're following you. And in their whole rationale, we don't have the time to get into all the history of this, they really were thinking somehow this little tribe, this little band is going to go to Jerusalem and kick butt. Somehow God's going to get behind us, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to kick butt. Even though Jesus just said, I'm going to go get my butt kicked. Okay, pardon me, but that's, we're just coming into your neighborhood to speak real language. So they're going, when you get to glory, give us some of that too. Let us sit at your right, and let us sit at your left. Now, folks, there's no way you read that. And if you really get in the scene, don't go, you guys are idiots. Like right after he says this, you are so narcissistic. By that I mean like narcissists. You're just so focused on your own self that you now go, hey, Jesus, give us whatever we want. Give us glory. And we go, James and John, are you kidding me? And yet, the fact is the majority of us even walk into a church on a Sunday morning going, are they looking at me? In whatever direction. I hope they aren't. I hope they are. I was watching that kind of older cartoonish movie for kids, The Incredibles, um, yesterday with my kids. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. That's actually years in the past now. But the girl, the daughter in that, has this moment where she's at school and she wants to be like everybody else. And this boy that everybody else walks out and she makes herself invisible when he looks at her. And then she gets up. She's like, but he looked at me. He looked at me. And that's the way so many of us are. And many of us get unbelievably aggravated by the fact that we're not being looked at. Why don't they notice me? Why don't they notice what I've done? Many of us are constantly climbing this ladder to say, I just need to go one more rung up so that I can be seen. Why don't they understand me? Why don't they respect me? I want to be somebody. If I can just accomplish that, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Give me glory. And the whole world says you are either glorious or you're inglorious. You're either noticed or you're unnoticed. And James and John, like so many of us, are after being noticed. They want to sit in the seat. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Which I'm convinced at this moment, Jesus says, here's the problem. You are counter-shaped. I'm telling you that there is a very shape to my life. That you are meant to be shaped by, but you are countershaped. There is a form I want you to live in, but you are deformed. The day before yesterday, I'm walking to get the mail. I'm getting the mail in my house with four kids. Nine and under is a big deal. I'm going to get the mail. Everybody wants to go. I'm like, you fools, it's 117. Like, don't walk outside. You'll die, okay? Everybody's taking water before they walk outside. Drink water, put on shoes. You'll burn your feet, but they all want to go. So we're going, my little daughter, Harmony, always wants to be in the lead. I got to be in the lead, wait! And she'll kick out and go forward. I'm like, wow, there's competition in this like crazy. My other daughter just wants to get on her little tricycle and 
go, and the one of my sons is really competitive, and the one's, other one's really contemplative. My nine-year-old's really contemplative. So we're walking. My nine-year-old says to me, Dad, what does the word deformed mean? And if you're a father and you hear a question like that from your kid, you're thinking, what? Like, where did you get this? I go, what makes you ask that? What does the word deformed mean? He goes, well, some kids said it to me at school. And I'm like, what? When? I'm like, about what? Well, about my hair. Well, my kid's a redhead, okay? Well, about my hair. When? Second grade. I'm like, son, you're in fourth grade. <laughs> you're still thinking about this two years later? I have a good therapist. We can go to him. I, I, this is... They said it to me, and I said, well, why are you thinking about it now? He said, well, I'm reading this book. Well, he's reading this book. It's a blue book. It's got a little face in the front. It's called Wonder. I don't know if you've ever heard about it, but it's about um, a kid who has deformities. And my son's, my son's second time reading. So while I was reading the book, and they mention that, um, I think the kid's name's Angus, I think. Angus's face is deformed, and it reminded me of when these kids said, my hair is deformed. And I said, well, son, that makes no sense. Hair can't be deformed unless it's like all over the place. And, but I'm knowing in my head what they're, they're trying to figure out words to say, your hair's weird, it's red hair, your hair's deformed. Well, here's the moment. Jesus says, do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? They say, we're able. And he goes, no, you're deformed. You're misshaped. You totally don't get what life really is, and you totally do not get how I've actually formed you. Here's what's interesting about the world according to the Bible. The world according to the Bible is that God has made the world to function and to flourish in a very certain way. But sin comes in and it distorts. It presents a counter shape. It deforms the world. And it deforms us. The human beings fundamentally were meant to live their lives with an outward oriented shape. And sin comes in and it deforms us to turn inward. C.S. Lewis said that now we're nasal gazers. Navel gazers. Nasal. We look at our noses. We're navel gazers. We look at our navels. It's all about us. Give me your glory. And then the world shapes us to go, you know what life is? It's a ladder. It's about how high you can get. It's about each rung that you climb. The world says, get some. It's all about upward mobility. And Jesus says, you're able? Do you know the cup that I'm about to drink? Do you know the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? And in simple form, we can't go into all the details. He's saying, folks, I'm about to die. And the form I'm showing you of what life truly is, is about becoming downwardly mobile, not upwardly mobile. You'll see, and this is when he says, Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, there's ten others... James and John get up by Jesus and they go, we're going to get there in advance. We're going to find our position. We're going to fight for position. We've got to be first. Jesus says things about those who fight to be first. So they fight to be first. Let us sit with you in your glory. And the other ten hear it and they get 
indignant. Now, what does indignant mean? Mad, angry, burning with anger. What happens when we burn with anger? We fight and we quarrel. What's amazing about that is the book of James in chapter 4, verse 1 says, What is it that causes quarrels? And what is it that causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That you desire, but you don't get it, and so you murder. You want to know what this upward mobility creates in our culture and what it creates in our hearts and what it creates in our relationships and what it creates in our families? Fighting and quarreling that will even in the end lead to murder because we don't get what we want. So now the 12 are fighting with each other. They're indignant. They're angry with each other because you are trying to be first, but I want to be first. You want to be at his right and his left, but I want to be there. You fought to get in front, but I want to be there. So you wonder why Jesus then teaches a lesson to his disciples and ultimately to the world to say, those who want to be first will be last. And those who choose to be last in the end will end up being first. And that's very much like what Jesus now says right here. And Jesus calls them together. He's like, this is a problem. <laughs> I'm about to die and this band is who's to carry on my name, who's to carry on my shape, who's to carry on my form. So he calls them together and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. So he's going, you want to know what happens? If you guys are called to be leaders at any level and you follow in this way, you'll be just like the world. You'll end up being the ones who get in positions of authority, whether you're mothers or fathers. Whether you're a leader of a classroom or you're a leader of a company. Whether you're a leader in the government or you're the coach of a team. And you will get in there and you will make it all about you that you will lord it over them and go, you know what? You're going to know that I'm the leader. And you're going to push your foot up and you're going to step down on them because you want the glory. And he goes, if you're going to lead in my way, you're going to follow in my form. You're going to take on my shape. That is not the way it goes. That's not the way I made the world, and that's not the way I'm forming you. That's the counter shape. The shape is this. It won't be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. He doesn't just say last. I mean, last can sit up there like kind of nebulous. He goes, you want to be great? You want to be first? You want to know what that really means? It means servanthood. It means becoming the slave of all. For you want to say you follow me? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to follow in my shape? You want to follow in my form? You want to truly understand that the way I've made human beings, I'm the one who made them, is that in fact you fight to serve. Then in every situation, every bit of power you get to yourself, every bit of leadership, every opportunity for relationship is that you fight to serve. You become downwardly mobile, just like Jesus did. That when he walked into a room in which they were all looking at him, they were all seeking to listen to him, they were all seeking to follow him, and he takes off his garments, he ties a towel around his waist, 
He takes the very form of a servant, literally, and stoops all the way down on his knees to do the work of a slave to wash their feet. So much so in that moment that Peter, in one of his down moments, goes, Never! You, the Lord of all, will never wash my feet. To which Jesus looks him back at the face, and he says, If I don't wash you, you can take no part in me. And Peter then says, then wash all of me. But Jesus didn't fight to climb the ladder, to become upwardly mobile. He says, in fact, truly, you think you see, you don't, because you think life is upward mobility. You think you hear, but all you hear is become greater. You think you live, but in fact, you don't, because the abundant life is found in service. The abundant life is found in sacrifice, the abundant life, the way God made life to be, that where we truly taste and see that God is good by tasting and seeing that it is better to give than it is to receive is in washing feet. That's the shape. This J-curve life is real life. The upward mobile seek position. They seek recognition. They seek honor. They seek glory. They seek to be like Muhammad Ali. Or Will Smith, who quoted him, I'm the greatest. That's what they seek, and in turn they find nothing. In seeking to find their life, they lose it. They seek to be served, and in so, lose it. But Jesus says the greatest is found through service, becoming the slave of all. Understanding, we've come to give. One of my best friends the other day um, presented this picture about this, and he said... The Jesus shape of life, the Jesus form of life, is like Pac-Man. Now, many of you guys are young, and you've never played in an arcade game of Pac-Man. You guys know what Pac-Man is, though? The little yellow guy who seeks to eat all the little white pellets, and then avoid the ghosts. But when you play Pac-Man and you see the screen, there's this moment that if you go left, you come out on the right. But here's the image. If you go up to the top, and you seek the top, to climb the ladder, you end up on the bottom. But if you go down through the bottom, you end up on the top. That's the Jesus form of life. That's the Pac-Man way of life. So what does that really look like? What does that really look like in real life? Well, there's a great, great story in the 1936 Olympics. The 1936 Olympics, anybody know where that was held? Berlin, Germany. Who led Germany in 1936? Adolf Hitler. The 1936 Olympics. Hitler was trying to present Olympics in an Olympics that staged his worldview. He was trying to show the world that the white Aryan race was superior. And they had a primo, primo athlete named Lutz Long. Lutz Long was the world record holder in the long jump coming into this. The Americans had an individual that by every definition Hitler would look down his nose upon named Jesse Owens. Now you guys all may know the name Jesse Owens because he ended that Olympics sitting at the very center of this Olympics that Adolf Hitler had staged. An African-American man holding up his arms with four gold medals wrapped around his neck. We now, learning many things, love that image. 
But what we miss, many of us, is there's a story underneath the story about this primo athlete, Lutz Long, the world record holder in the long jump. Earlier in the day, before Jesse Owens wins all of his gold medals, he's seeking the long jump, which he ends up having a gold medal for. And Jesse Owens is running, and every time he's faulting, every time he goes to the long jump, he steps on the board, goes off, penalized. Everybody doesn't even think he's going to get into the finals. Looks long, chooses at this moment to go down, to be a servant, to become the slave of all, even in midst of all of the opposition of the ruling authorities in Germany. And he walks up to Jesse Owens and he goes, I'm going to tell you a trick. Jesse Owens goes, what is it? He said, get a towel, tie it up, put it just a few inches in front of the board and jump from the towel. Jesse Owens does it. He qualifies. Jesse Owens does it again. He keeps moving forward. He keeps moving forward. Jesse Owens, on his last jump, jumps from the towel and sets a new world record. To which he lands in the sand. And you'd think at that moment, Lutz Long went, what am I doing? I could have been the Olympic champion. But he doesn't. He runs in the sand. He pulls Jesse Owens up out of the sand. Lifts Owens' hands in the air and starts leading a chant throughout the whole entire stadium, Jesse, 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 gets them all to do it and walks him out, delivers him over to receive his gold medal to which he, I believe, receives the silver. The only way Lutz Long does that is to say, I'm going to die to myself to seek to advance the other person, even if in the end it means I don't win the gold medal. And I promise you, Lutz Long walked out far more gratified, far more filled with life, than he would have if he just stayed silent and didn't seek to stoop down and to serve. So here's my question. If we are to wipe our eyes that Jesus wants us to see, here's my first question to all of us. Do we really want to follow Jesus? Do we really want to take up the cup that he drank? Do we really want to be baptized with the baptism he was baptized with? Do we really want to die to ourselves? to become a servant and a slave of all? Do we want to fight for obscurity? Are we willing to give up the gold medal that someone else may ultimately have it? That's the Jesus form, the Jesus shape of life. But if we're honest right now, before we end, and we hit the pause button for just a second, we go, am I really willing? And even if I'm willing, can I actually do that? In a world that's pressing us to climb the ladder, when our hearts are saying we want to be noticed, can we really do that? And I'm convinced in this moment this only happens through becoming like this blind man, Bartimaeus. And they came to Jericho, verse 46, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, in the midst of a huge crowd, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And now all the obstacles go up. So we're saying right now, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. Let me live. Let me live in your form. And all the obstacles start going, whoo. Like Tetris. They're just thrown in your way. We're doing all the old school games right now. <laughs> all of these objects are coming at you. All of these obstacles are there getting in your way. Just like Bartimaeus has. 
And many rebuked him. They say, shut up, be silent. But he cries out all the more. Son of David, have mercy upon me. And Jesus stops and he says, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you and throwing off his cloak. He springs up and he comes to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? So Jesus isn't just saying that to blind Bartimaeus. He's saying that to each one of us. Jesus is saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? Are you going to answer like James and John? Give me glory. Or are you going to answer like blind Bartimaeus? Jesus, help me see. Even through all the obstacles, even through all the hindrances of my own heart, of my own conflicted desires, of the world that's telling me something different, help me see. You get at that moment where you get vulnerable. And you come vulnerably before Jesus and you go, this is who I am. All of my weakness, all of my stains, all of my sin, all of my sickness, all of my disease. Jesus, help me see. Rabbi, let me recover my sight, he says in 51. And Jesus says to him, go on your way. Your faith. You know what we need to live this life? Faith. Faith to say, Jesus, help me see. Faith to say, in spite of everything that wants me to move up, I'm going to go down. Faith to say, I'm going to fight for obscurity. I don't need to be seen. I need to serve. I don't need to be noticed. I need to don the wash basin of towel and wash feet. Jesus, help me see. Empower me. And then and only then will we find our resurrection. Will we experience the abundant life? Will we understand the truth of Jesus' words that it's only in losing our lives we will find it? It's only in seeking to be last that in turn we will become first. It's only in going through the bottom that we will end up at the top. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you and thank you for your glorious grace to us. God, we pray with blind Bartimaeus, help us to see. God, wipe our eyes. Open our eyes. God, let us live for you by living for others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.